Okay. <laughs> um, so we are in the middle of our sermon series called Refined, Discovering the Way of Jesus After Deconstruction. And deconstruction is kind of having a moment right now. A relevant magazine said that so many people are leaning into this idea of deconstructing their faith, which is basically saying that they are taking stock of what they received as children, what they received without question, and they're asking themselves, do I really believe this? Does this really fit into my life? Um, what, what do I do with my doubts and questions, and how do I make space for that? Um, they're doing so because for many of these people, they've been hurt, and so they need a way of kind of working their way out of that pain and figuring out, can I still hold on to the God that I loved as a child when people who love God hurt me? Some people have learned new things, and they experience new things, and they have new ideas, and so they're trying to reconcile what they knew as a child or knew as a younger believer with what they know now. And you know, as a pastor, this really excites me because one of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in the writings of a prophet named Isaiah where he tells the people of Israel that God has a surprising invitation for them. Come now and let us reason together. As a young teen who was curious about God, that meant something to me because I, that meant that God was curious about me too. That God was saying, I want to have a conversation that stimulates your mind. I want to honor your, your intelligence. I want you to come and reason with me. And so I get that deconstruction is really important because it does give us that space to take ownership of our faiths and to reject some unhelpful teachings or systems that prevent us from thriving. But many people stop at just that rejecting part. They rarely take the step up to God to begin reasoning together with him. They reason alone that their faith is not for them, and so they stop altogether, which is why the sermon series is both permission to deconstruct, but encouragement to rebuild your faith so we can, be, we can begin building practices in our daily lives to help us thrive. So today we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. And I used to believe that the Holy Spirit was all about, oh, no, that's not it, Teach. It was all about speaking in tongues and boldness to evangelize and having words of knowledge that seemed uh, really flashy and really impressive. But in my own deconstruction and reconstruction, I came to identify myself as a recovering Pentecostal. I still deeply believe in the work and the person of the Spirit, but I have been hurt by the misuse of teachings around the Holy Spirit that emphasize those flashy manifestations, those signs and wonders, and unquestionable authority when, every, when anybody says, thus saith the Lord, or the Holy Spirit told me. There always seemed to be, for me, whenever I talk to somebody about the Holy Spirit or the work of the Holy Spirit, that there's some super standard of holiness that you get, some stamp of approval when you add Holy Spirit to anything that you say or anything that you do, and that simply wasn't my experience. There was a time um, in my development as a believer, so I met the Lord really, really young as a five-year-old, and I fell so in love with Jesus. I was so interested in everything I could find about who Jesus was and his way, and, and I really was, was so excited as a little girl to be a Christian. I wanted to be at church, and I wanted to be at VBS because I wanted to be among believers who knew Jesus, who could show me a little bit more about him. 
But then my, my family started attending an Assembly of God church. And Assembly of God is a Pentecostal denomination that is really known for focusing on what they call the initial physical evidence of the Holy Spirit. So hope the speaking in tongues and the, you know, the laying out in the Spirit. So if you've ever seen like a revival where somebody gets prayed on and they fall in the Spirit, they really focused in on those things, and that was exciting to me, too, because I was like, oh, I love Jesus and the Bible, and now these people are, like, happy and joyful and dancing around. This is the coolest religion ever. This is the coolest experience ever. But then one summer, I started attending a revival with a bunch of my friends, um, and we started visiting or going to this, this, this see the same uh, speaker over and over again, and one of, the, and the, one of the things that this speaker said, just kind of, like, off the cuff, was like, um, you know, you really need to be praying for God to give you the gift of speaking in tongues. Because this gift of speaking in tongues is God's love language for you. And how do you know that you love God if you can't speak his love language? At that point, I was about 13 or 14, and I had no idea that there was this other language I needed to learn. I just felt French, so I'm like, Lord Jesus, help me out. <laughs> okay, if this is what this person says to help me love Jesus more than I already love him, then I need the gift of speaking in tongues. And so for that whole summer, I was at every altar I could find praying and asking God to give me the gift of speaking in tongues. I have a special affinity for any time in the New Testament or any time in the Bible, actually, when the community notices that there's one person who's always showing up at the temple asking God for this one thing, always seeking God for this one thing, because that's what I was doing, but I wanted the gift of speaking in tongues. I went from revival meeting to revival meeting. I was at every uh, summer camp I could get to, every youth camp I could get to. I was in my pastor's office at least once a month saying, help me speak in tongues. One person that I sat with and said, I, when I told him, like, I just want to speak in tongues. Like, I love Jesus and I want him to give me a love language. They started to interrogate my life. They said, well, you must not be able to speak in tongues because you're misusing your mouth. So are you eating the wrong things? Are you, are you gossiping? Are you cussing? Are you, um, are, are you using the Lord's name in vain? Are you eating, like I said, unhealthy things? And they said, give all these things up and that will kickstart your tongue to start uh, praying in your love language. So after you give up these things, they said, your, your mouth will be cleaned. And they used that passage in the Bible where, you, where uh, the prophet asked the Lord to touch their coal, take the coal and touch their lips so their lips will be purified. And so that person said, okay, once you stop doing that stuff, your lips will be purified. And then sit alone and just say, Jesus, 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 over and over again until you get your prayer language. So I did it. Every prayer time, after I gave up all of those things, after I gave up Oreos for Jesus, <laughs> after I did all of those things, and I felt like, uh, okay, now I'm pure, I just started saying Jesus, 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 over and over again. And the name that gave me so much hope and so much inspiration, the name that I love, slowly became a name that I dreaded that brought shame along with it. Because every time I sat there and said, Jesus, 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 I did not speak in tongues. To compound that, within the context of, that I was growing in my faith, the church that I was growing in my faith, there were women who did have their prayer language. There were people who did speak in tongues, and they were like the rock stars of our church. They were the ones that got to stand up at the, at the end of the church, at the front of the building, at, as we close and receive people for prayer. And they were the ones who got to lay hands on others because they were filled 
with the Spirit. And so there was a part of me that was like, I just want to be used for you, God, by being able to pray for my friends in our love language. Why don't you love me that way? I spent so much time that year seeking out God through gifted leaders and gifted speakers who I thought were some sort of like metaphysical DoorDash deliverers. Like they just had the right thing to give me to help me get my love language and it didn't happen. But what, when it did happen, when I did fully acknowledge and feel the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with me speaking in tongues. The first time that I sensed the work of the Spirit in my life after that dry season of feeling so overwhelmed and so much pressure and so much shame, the first time I sensed the Spirit again had to do with a, a gift that somebody gave me because they simply were praying for me and they thought that God wanted me to give them that gift, that they, God wanted him to give me that gift. It was a quiet, private little conversation with a youth pastor who said, I've been praying for you, and there's this retreat for youth that I think you should go on, and I just want to send you on this retreat. And it wasn't a retreat that had anything to do with our denomination, so that was really weird that our youth pastor was sending me to this. But that retreat really helped me connect to God in a new way, because I learned to pray, not trying to get something from God, but how to learn to pray by quieting myself and making space for the Spirit. So I used to believe that the work of the Spirit was all about the big manifestations of God showing up, the being slain in the Spirit, or, you know, there was this revival in Florida where people would leave with gold teeth, gold fillings in their teeth, and I thought, oh, God, you're really cool. Or, you know, running around the room, or as some people joke, you know, swinging from the, the chandeliers or the rafters, or speaking in tongues. But in today's passage that we're going to look at, we're going to see that the work of the Spirit is actually kind of like my experience with my youth pastor. That it's subtle interior work in all of us that allows us to know God, just, not just as powerful, but as personal. So join me in prayer. Jesus, I pray for your Spirit, your Spirit of love, your Spirit that knows us in our deepest, most intimate places to be with us at this time. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Amen. All right, so let's take a look at our passage today, 1 Kings 19, 1 through 13. Do we have that? All right. So now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom tree and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. Next slide. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. <coughs> so he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your walls, and put your prophet to death with the sword. And I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after that fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? In our passage today, it seems to show that the ministry of the Spirit is a deeply loving and caring one. Not an impersonal one, not a flashy one, and not a performative one. It supports what we know about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is a third person of the triune God. The love of the Father, Son, uh, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Augustine uses sort of this analogy. The lover is the Father, the beloved is the Son, and the love is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God's personal presence with us that reveals God's loving nature to us. Let me say that again. The Spirit is God's personal presence with us that reveals to us God's loving nature. We see this today in our passage where Elijah, Elijah first had experienced the loving nature of God, which is the primary work of the Holy Spirit. But before we look closely at how the Holy Spirit's ministry ministered to Elijah and gives us an example, gives us a blueprint for how we should think about the Holy Spirit, I want to back up to let you know what was going on in Elijah's life before um, he was so despondent, before he was so disappointed. So real quickly, Elijah was a prophet in a time of Israel when Israel was drifting further and further away from God. First and second Kings details the rise and fall of Israel because they just would not remain faithful to God. So God sent them prophets, gifted speakers, and thinkers who spoke out against the kings and their corrupt ways. They reminded the people of God's love and they pleaded, oftentimes begged for them to repent. Their lives were fully devoted to knowing God, knowing God's ways, and helping others know him too. So Elijah, a biggest kind of enemy at that time was King Ahab. And Israel had had a drought for about three years as a sign of God's displeasure for their ongoing flirtation with paganism. And so uh, Ahab was the king of Israel, or, uh, sorry, Ahab was the king of Israel at that time. And he had married um, a daughter of the king of a neighboring Phoenicia uh, or Lebanon, a country, a powerful and influential woman named Jezebel. She personally supported 400 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And these prophets that um, Ahab had summoned to Mount Carmel in response to Elijah's invitation. So Elijah uh, wanted to speak out against all of these prophets and against these, these idolatrous ways. And so as he was speaking out saying, there is one true God, Jezebel and Ahab were like, well, we have uh, over 800 prophets. So we're going to bring them all to Mount Carmel. Um, and, and Elijah was like, Elijah was like, okay, let's show up. And so they all showed up, and they had this amazing display of, of God's power. Elijah uh, had them. Uh, Elijah and the prophets agreed that whichever God showed up in fire was the true God. And so 
the morning that they got there, the prophets of Baal called upon their god, and they danced around their altar, and they cut themselves with knives. That was part of their religious practice. And so at noon, Elijah was like, like, where's your god? Like, shout louder. Like, he was so confident that his god was the true god that he was saying, what's going on with your god? Why can't he show up with fire? You're cutting yourselves. You're making yourselves embarrassed. Where is your god? And so after they had done all of that and they had no response from Baal, um, Elijah took 12 stones, each, tw each uh, stone for the tribe of Israel, and he built an altar for the Lord, the true God. Then he dug a trench around that altar and placed wood upon it. Then he cut, uh, he cut a bull into pieces and arranged it around the wood. And so then he called and said, to bring four large jars full of water to pour them on the offering and the wood, soaking everything with water. And then he said, do it again. And then he said, do it again. And then at that point, he prayed for God to come, and God showed up in fire and burned up and dried up everything in that altar. And it was at that moment that everybody acknowledged that Elijah's God was a true God. So after this massive uh, humiliation of uh, Ahab and Jezebel's prophets. This is when Jezebel is really mad. And so she's like, you have humiliated me. So now I want you to die. And so this is where we find Elijah when he is so deep in despair. So Elijah, when he did everything right, when Elijah served God well, when Elijah spoke truth, when Elijah sought God, he still was running in fear. Because in his mind, that everybody would acknowledge who the true God is, all of the idol, all the idols would be torn down, all the pagan worship would stop, and all the prophets of Baal would either turn or at that time be killed. All of his problems as a prophet would have been fixed. He did his job, he served his God well, so why is this queen wanting to kill him? So many of us on our paths of deconstruction have served God well. We've done everything right. We have loved God and told others about the love of God, and yet we still get hurt. We feel like we're running for our lives. Like nobody gets me, nobody loves me, nobody understands me, and I'm just trying to do what's right for you, God. And so this is why I think Elijah is a great example of how to work through your deconstruction and how to acknowledge and experience the work of the Holy Spirit while we're deconstructing. Elijah struggled with disappointment even to the point of wanting to die. And so Elijah is there and he's wanting to die. And so he realizes, you know, like he sends his servant away and he lays down in a broom tree. And so after he, after he wakes up, he decides to go a little further. And so he goes into the wilderness. And this is another picture that is really resonant with people who are deconstructing, going out into the wilderness. So you've done your work for God, and then you get hurt. And so you, you back up, and you just start wandering. You start learning different things and listening to different people. And you start asking questions. And you kind of just feel like you're, you don't have a theological home anymore or the church that you were at isn't a safe place. And so you feel like you're just wandering in the wilderness. This is a picture that we often talk about when we're talking about deconstruction. And I really love what my favorite past, one of my favorite pastors and theologians, Jonathan Martin, has to say about wilderness and deconstruction. I think we have that quote. So Jonathan Martin.
Hatton says in his book, Prototype, God hadn't drawn me, because he had had his own deconstruction journey, into the wilderness so I could attempt to prove myself to him with religious activity instead of the more secular activities I indulge in to prove myself to everyone else. He hadn't brought me away from the hustle and noise so I could demonstrate my spirituality to him. He brought me out to allure me. He didn't want my performance. He wanted my attention. Many of us, when we start deconstruction and we run out to the wilderness, we kind of just stay there, just wandering. But what I really love about the way Jonathan Martin describes the wilderness is the wilderness is a unique place where you can meet God if you will open your eyes, if you're aware of the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what happens in Elijah. So he goes out and he wanders uh, into the wilderness. And this is where he directly connects with God. This is where the Holy Spirit begins to minister him by being his great comforter in a time of distress. So this series is about finding the Jesus way as we're deconstructing. So Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the comforter. Jesus says in John 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance where uh, whatsoever I have said unto you. I'm going to read that again. But the Comforter, who is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So that word Comforter is actually uh, the word Paraclete in Greek. And it means, it can mean helper or advocate or yes, Comforter. It's a word that describes a picture of somebody who just comes alongside you. To, to carry your burden, to ease your load, to care for you in whatever way you need on your journey. This is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, to come alongside you and I as we grow in our discipleship and love for Jesus, to offer anything that we need on that journey, whether it's help or advocacy or comfort. And so we see this in Elijah's experience with the Holy Spirit when he's out in the wilderness. So he's out in the wilderness, and then, uh, and so the Spirit comes alongside him first to help him get up and eat, to help him take care of himself. So Elijah is sleeping, he's despondent, and the Holy Spirit comes and says, get up and eat. And when Elijah wakes up, there's bread and there's water. I heard one rabbi said, this is your first experience of angel food cake in the Bible. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit came and ministered to Elijah's felt need in his body. And so then Elijah goes to sleep. And then the Holy Spirit comes and ministers again with food and water. So one of the first ways that we can acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that the Spirit our paraclete comes alongside us to remind us to take care of our bodies because it is hard to do existential work of deconstructing and asking questions if we are physically worn down. It is hard to have an, or, or, to have an idea about what to go, where to go to next with our faith or what to believe or who to talk to or who to trust when our bodies are weary from lack of rest and food. And so I find it, well, like comforting that the Holy Spirit showed up for Elijah in this deeply practical, loving way. I, because of my background, I would look for the Holy Spirit in these big manifestations. But I experience the Holy Spirit now in small, 
practical, loving ways. Like this past week, somebody texted me, and somebody in our church community texted me and said, can we bring you dinner? Because we know that this is a hard weekend for you. Exactly a year ago today, my mom passed, and she just wanted to make sure that I didn't have to cook and grieve at the same time. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We often explain away these acts of kindness because they're simply coming from a friend or a uniquely sweet person. But part of finding the Jesus way in our deconstruction is opening our eyes to see the work of the Spirit in, in our lives in real, practical, tangible ways. Because Jesus took on a body, so our bodies matter. Our experience in this world, in these bodies, matter. And we get to partner with the Holy Spirit in caring for each other if we meet felt needs. So let's be vigilant to see the work of the Spirit in our everyday lives because the kind act of a person is not just them being kind, it's them ministering alongside the Holy Spirit. The next way that we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Elijah's uh, life is that the Spirit comes alongside us to process our deepest pain. So when um, Elijah, after he ate and, and after he ate twice and the spirit said, you know, this is a hard journey for you and he goes and he wanders for 40 more days. He, he, want, he, ta he takes himself to the mountain of God and this is where God meets him to process his deepest pain. And I just want to say that I just love that 40 days is put into this passage because that's a lot. That is a long time. And that gives me a lot of hope that sometimes it takes us a while to work through our stuff. Sometimes it takes us a while to deconstruct and find Jesus, but as, but as long as we're moving towards the mountain of God, as long as we're moving towards Jesus, there is nothing wasted in that wandering. So, Elijah gets to the mountain, and he's hoping to have new clarity and hope, and he gets it in this one question. The Spirit says to Elijah, what are you doing here? Whenever God asks a question in the Bible, it's not because God doesn't know the answer. And especially with this question, it's not like, wait, uh, how did you get to this mountain? What are you doing here? Like, who told you to come here? These are questions that God uses to help us become introspective, to help us to take stock of kind of where we are and what's going on in our lives. It helps us to slow down and quiet ourselves from all the noise and all the messages and all the lies that are surrounding us and, and hone in on his voice. He uses these questions to help us uh, listen more closely to him. So when God is saying to Elijah, where are you? He's asking Elijah to stop. Now you've come and we're going to reason together. Where are you? What are you doing here? And what I love about the first time God asked this question of Elijah, God asked this question and just sits back and lets Elijah go. He lets him vent and rage and have attitude and be frustrated. And that is encouraging to us because that says our God can handle all of our hard emotions, all of our scary words that we would hold back because we have some weird view that fear of the Lord doesn't mean you can't be honest with the Lord. Elijah was honest on the mountain of God about all of the things he was frustrated about for his faith journey. And God just sat back and listened. And God said, all right, I'm going to show up for you. 
And this is the next way that the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and is our helper. The Spirit comes alongside us to help us hear the still, small voice. In our Western consumeristic culture, we've been conditioned to go big or go home. Listen, I'm from Texas. I know a little bit about going big. <laughs> There's something about that bigness that makes us feel safe and validated. It feels sexy and sensational. It, dis it distracts others from the core vulnerabilities that we have because we're doing the big thing or saying the big thing or sharing the big thing or being on fire for God. But what I love so much about this experience is that God says, I'm going to show up. And Elijah is in the cave waiting for God to show up. And then there is a wind, but God is not in the wind. And then there is an earthquake, but God is not in the earthquake. And there is fire, but God is not in the fire. The only time Elijah stood up and stepped out was when there was a still, small voice inviting Elijah out. Now think for a minute about what Elijah just experienced at Mount Carmel. Carmel. He possibly saw all three of these elements and God showing up in a big way. He for sure saw fire. It's possible that there was wind and it's possible that the ground shook. So Elijah had seen God in the big ways and so don't hear what I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit and God does not show up in these big ways but those are often the exception to the rule. The disciple of Jesus knows to look for, for God in the still, small voice. The small, everyday, recurring things that the Spirit is reminding us of. Maybe it's you are beloved. Maybe it's there's nothing wrong with you. Maybe it's I see you in your grief. Maybe it's don't give up. Maybe it's call your pastor. But there are still small things that the Spirit sometimes says to us, and that is the work of the Spirit, guiding us towards our wholeness while we're wandering in the wilderness. And like I said, I love that Elijah didn't come out at this moment until that still small voice came, because that is what he needed at that moment. So my question for you is, what are the everyday small ways that the Spirit is showing up for you? What are the still small things that keep coming back to you? I often hear that, of people who say, you know, I, I, open, I turn on the, my car and the same song keeps playing on my commute. Maybe God is trying to use those lyrics to point me somewhere. I know somebody who, in her deconstruction, the Bible was used as a weapon and not a tool for her peace. And so it was so hard for her to read the Bible. So she said, I'm going to spend the next year just reading poetry and, and looking for God in poetry. That was her way of looking for the still, small voice. I know some of us on our Sabbaths or our time off, we go away and we get away from the noise of our lives, maybe our kids or our coworkers, the city, whatever it is, we go away to a quiet place. For me, one of the most impactful things that I learned about listening for the still small voice was in spiritual direction when my spiritual director said, you really have talked a lot about loving being in nature. Maybe this next year you go find God in nature. And that was after a season where my husband and I were deeply hurt by leadership of a church where we served. And I spent that whole year looking for God in nature. And now, every time I go out, I see the ministry of the paraclete in my life. 
So at Misfit Meals this week, I want to encourage you to ask each other this question. What are the everyday small ways the Spirit is showing up for you? I want to encourage you to ask each other these questions during snack time or over a meal or send each other this text. How is God speaking to you? What is the still everyday small way the Spirit is speaking to you? Speaking to you. And then there's one last way that God showed up. And this kind of leads into next week for us. The Spirit came alongside, comes alongside us to remind us that we are not alone. So after Elijah uh, came out and experienced God, they had this huge conversation. Um, well, actually, at this point, God is doing most of the talking because Elijah did a whole lot of talking. So God is doing most of the talking. God ends his, his, his uh, conversation with uh, Elijah, and he says, I reserve 7,000 who have not yet bowed to Baal. He told Elijah that, yeah, you are a prophet and you are doing it right. You are being faithful, but you're not alone. There are others who are being faithful too. And so next week, Pastor TC is going to help us understand why gathering in this place, why being a part of a church community is an important part of our deconstruction because we are not alone in the wilderness. So join me in prayer. Jesus, you love every single one of us so intensely and so passionately, and you see where every single one of us is on our journeys. You see the pain in our hearts. You see the frustration. You see the long conversations that have no resolution. You see the throwing the Bible across the room because it doesn't make sense. You see the sitting in parking lots of church buildings, not able to go in because you're so, we're so deeply scared. You see the middle of the night questions about who you are and where you, where you are. You see us raging and being frustrated and angry and just so deeply grieved by the corruption in our world. You see us feeling helpless and you, ask, you see us asking questions of, that lead to futility. You see us looking at our kids and wondering, are we doing this right? You see us praying and wondering, is anybody listening to this? You see us. You see us. And your spirit is with us. And so I pray for every person in this room, every person within, within the sound of my voice, to experience your spirit, not in the big flashy ways that so often lead us questioning if you are really there, but in those intimate, personal ways where we know that was only from God. We pray that we can engage with that and live it out and share it with each other because we want to be a community that listens and leans into your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.